0: How are you doing? This is when I get into my codependent phase of the retreat. <laughs> I'm like, you okay? <laughs> um, so uh, we're going to, uh, to share some, some reflections on, um, Dharma in uh, in relational life, Dharma, you know, with uh, that thing we call other people, yeah, that that thing, um, really kind of where where the rubber meets the road in uh, in our spiritual lives. So, um, we'll sort of, last year, Brian and I staged debates, actually, <laughs> and, um, uh, where I would give, like, I would give one point, and then, you know, sort of, like, and he would give a whole spiel that was the counterpoint, and we, like, sort of pretended like we hated each other, and <laughs> were fighting, even though we could both argue for the other side as much, Yeah. And, um, so anyway, we'll, we'll see what unfolds in the, in the dialogue here. Um, it's not, <laughs> we're not, <laughs> not planning on a debate, but, uh, yeah. Um, so yeah, a friend, a friend of mine described, she, she described the movement from, uh, uh, a uh, an egocentric life to a dharma-centric life. Yeah, what would that what would that mean to actually integrate this path of practice into one's life? And there is this real sense of uh, of kind of yeah of of refuge actually as we the sort of building blocks of life get shifted in some sense. And the sense of me and my project and my, my life and my stuff and my acquisition and all of that, it it starts to, yeah, it starts to recede into the background a little bit more. And it's this uh, Dharma centric life of, of a life, essentially of, of learning, of opening to the feedback of the world. Yeah. And um, a lot of where this happens is in with is in uh, relationship, yeah, of one kind or another. And so uh, in some sense, like our spiritual maturity is best estimated by those around us. Yeah? I don't get to decide my level of uh, enlightenment. These two do. yeah. And I don't know what they would say. (laughs) So, I can have all these lofty ideas about my whatever, you know. But uh, it's really like, okay, the rubber meets the road in our relational lives, yeah? And we have ripple effects like we 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 impact um, the circles around us right and so this is this documented in a very concrete way in you know this um, uh, social network analysis that looks at sort of how how something ripples out in social networks so in one of the the kind of famous studies um, uh, Christakis um, wrote, um, they did this, uh, made this finding on this, this big longitudinal study of, of people and their level of <coughs> happiness and the way happiness rippled out into um, uh, social circles. So they write, human happiness is not merely the province of isolated individuals, The happiness of an individual is associated with the happiness of people up to three degrees removed in the social network. So, my friend's friend's friend, yeah? Happiness, in other words, is not merely a function of individual experience or individual choice, but is also a property of groups of people. Indeed, changes in individual happiness can ripple through social networks, giving rise to clusters of happy and unhappy individuals. So, uh, this is some of our inspiration, yeah? May my life be a cause for wholesome ripples, yeah? It doesn't have to be dramatic. It it can be very quiet, but may my life, the cultivation of my own heart, may that be a cause for those around me feeling more at ease, safe, um, happy. Yeah. And so this is this is in some ways like one form of our social activism. Yeah, like. May this be so. And of course, you know, it's like, when I'm alone, you know, my neurosis doesn't bump into that much, yeah? It's just, it has free reign, yeah? When I'm with that thing we call other people there are some collisions right and so we can see how like social relationships groups are sort of like steroids for the kilesas the defilements and the paramis the kind of like wholesome factors of mind right like in so like there's so much that's beautiful just in this week together like you can feel at some level i'm like i feel very deeply indebted to the kind of general field that that actually had effects on my own heart yeah very wholesome yeah and there are lots of situations where we can sort of see how the you know being with others being in relationship of one kind or another being in groups Actually stimulate some of the the least mature parts in us, yeah, yeah, I, it's like you need to nod. Don't make me feel <laughs> alone. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> this is Martha Nussbaum. I, I quote often. she says, uh, "We begin our lives as helpless babies, dependent on others for food, comfort, and survival itself." And even though we develop a degree of mastery and independence, we always remain alarmingly weak and incomplete, dependent on others and an uncertain world for whatever we're able to achieve. As we grow, we all develop a wide range of emotions responding to this predicament. Fear that bad things will happen and that we'll be powerless to ward them off. Love for those who help and support us grief when a loved one is lost, hope for good things in the future, anger when someone else damages something we care about. Our emotional life maps our incompleteness. A creature without any needs would never have reasons for fear or grief or hope or anger. But for that very reason, we are often ashamed of our emotions and of the relations of need and dependency bound up with them. Our emotional life maps our incompleteness. In other words, it maps our fragility or our need. It maps need, yeah. And because um because we are so dependent we belong to each other yeah as mother teresa said like if we have no peace it is because we've forgotten we belong to each other because we belong to each other that kind of vulnerability mobilizes like s- strong efforts to control yeah we call it clinging and <coughs> Clinging um, complicates everything. Some of it may be inevitable. We're mammals, you know, we're mammals. We have to love something. But we can start to distinguish between the kind of open hand of love and the clenched fist of clinging. And so often in relationships with those we care about, these two forces of the mind become entangled. Yeah. And so there's that saying, like there's a thin line between love and hate. But I, I think it's, there's a thin line between clinging and hate. And the clinging gets bound up with the love. Even though it feels so different, psychiatrist uh, Kernberg said, "Love is the revelation of the other person's freedom." You know, love is the revelation of the other person's freedom. In a lot of our closest relationships, the sense of the radical otherness of the subjectivity of of the other person is kind of lost. Like it's so easy for me to just think like, how do you fit into my world? And that doesn't mean I'm insensitive or lose sight entirely, but there's just this sense of like, you're in my world rather than we're in each other's worlds and the kind of deep honoring of the subjectivity of the other. Yeah. A, a mentor of mine, Gil Franzl, said um, said something like, "In in enlightenment, it's not you who gets free; it's that you free everything else. Yeah. You free everything else." in navigating this realm sila samadhi panya the ethical conduct the mind training the gathering of the mind wisdom are all all relevant here yeah it's all relevant for navigating this the interpersonal realm and so we become more sensitive we become more we become more deeply aligned with this intention towards non-harm yeah We marinate in love such that harm begins to feel more and more outrageous. We sensitize ourselves to the kind of instant karmic reverberations of doing harm. And that becomes its own behavioral modification program. It feels bad to harm. We uh, develop a facility, like this is the samadhi factor. In certain interpersonal situations, the story narrative is like a kind of black hole. yeah. And um, we keep getting sucked into it. And in that black hole of like the densest kind of reactivity, we lose our thread to the dharma we lose our thread to wisdom to compassion yeah and there's a certain kind of strength mind training agility in certain moments of just like i need to stay with the direct experience yeah i need to stay with the body because if i get pulled in to that story i act out even if that's just saying something mean or whatever, yeah? But it's like to stay, to stay, to actually sense, like, yeah, we're building strength, we're building mind power around this, yeah? And then, uh, and then Panya, we, we, uh, Panya, wisdom has a, a role in this, so, you know, we group the, the, the defi- what's called defilements, kalasas, like greed, hatred, delusion. Yeah, those are sort of the three main baskets. Yeah, and um, greed feels like this gaping hole in the heart. You know, you're just longing for it to be filled. Very obvious. Hatred burns. And delusion feels exactly like the truth. Yeah. Until it doesn't. Yeah. If we thought we were deluded, we would think differently. Yeah? Does that make sense? It's like we're working with the best model we have. Yeah? And we kind of think we're enlightened. You know? we're right we have to be otherwise we would think otherwise yeah so how do we even like notice this yeah how do we bump into this uh, some of this is re- we rely on others some of this we rely on uh, on feedback in one way or another sometimes we can we can start to see our delusional kind of patterning by seeing the, the way delusion often works is it rationalizes greed and hatred. It's like the way we pull a fast one on ourselves and, and fall into self-deception. And it's easy to do. It's easy to explain away the craving, the aversion. So we develop more and more wisdom, and then lastly, um, uh, we uh, um, we study like um, there. There's nothing, nothing like the gaze of the other to evoke the sense of self. Right, um, that the interpersonal realm is such that. It's it's very evocative to look into somebody's eyes or something, or to be seen to see. Is m- we act like it's not a big deal just to like talk to people, but it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it kind of is. We get good enough, you know. We whatever. We sort of polish off the personality. We like refine our views and opinions about weather and whatnot. But it's like. It's intense. <laughs> it's intense to see and be seen, yeah? Um, and what actually is getting evoked in that? It's like the, in the eyes of the other, it's like a mirror to see how our self constellates. Right? That sense of acute self Like the self is this object, right? You're looking at my eyes, you're looking into my eyes. What are you seeing? And it's like, are you seeing me? It's tender, yeah? And you get to actually feel into the outlines of that. Like what comes up? What comes up? Who do I think I am? What am I trying to hide? What do I want to show? What can you see? What can't you see? What's permissible about me? All of these like rigid views of who we think we are, what makes us valuable, what makes us worthy or of, of praise or shame, all of this comes up in the interpersonal realm if we pay close attention. And some of what we're doing is, um, yeah, is, is learning to um, not seek refuge in self-views. Yeah. Not, not, to, not to seek refuge there. And when we do that, the interpersonal world opens up to so much delight and play and ease and openness and connection. Yeah, Because ego to ego is never satisfying for long. It's never really satisfying. We have to actually drop the kind of curation of self in order to deeply connect. And so we do this to, to connect and to understand ourselves, understand self, sakaya ditti, self-view, clinging to self. Yeah. All of this, like all of these lessons are on offer in our interpersonal life, very, very potent realm. And uh, quite central in this is, um, is how we speak. There's a saying like, if you could never meditate, pay attention to your speech. Yeah, If you could never meditate, pay attention to your speech, because that is a kind of field guide to one's mind.
1: As Matthew was just alluding to, it really is this realm of speech that so much of this relational, you could say, energetic interchange plays out. <coughs> so much happens in that realm, which I, I'm sure many of you know. Like if you were to reflect right now, you can probably come to mind, what bring to mind, you know, uh, someone that shared words with you that made a really positive impact that supported you in some way. And likely you can also bring to mind uh, probably times where you've shared words that were soothing, helpful, supportive, uplifting to others. And oppositely, sometimes this is the easier place to connect with it, can you think of the times where somebody said something where you can still feel the sting of it, the hurt of it? I know, I know I can. Sometimes it's, it's, sometimes it's just a word or a two or a phrase that someone said to me that uh, sticks in my mind and then I, I swirl around it in a way. And then what about the words that we've said that we regret, that we know we hurt someone? It, it's, it's the power of speech. It can It can harm and be of such great benefit at the same time. remember this when I was uh, uh, a Zen monk. We, in, the, you know, in the winter and summer, we'd have these training periods. And the kind of the core community, uh, we would stay on after that. And then the training periods were mostly in silence, which in some ways was pretty sweet in terms of personal things, in terms of that life. <laughs> and one summer, because uh, I remember what would happen is, especially around lunch and dinner, we would, uh, instead of having these formal silent meals, we just hang out and talk. And by mid, I mean, this was in the fall. And by mid-fall, it just felt like we were at each other's throats and you could feel this like strong impulse to go back to silence because the speech was like destroying us. It was just crazy. (laughs) Yeah, they have such an impact. And for me, this has been uh, such an interesting arena of how do I bring this practice to my, my speech? To my speaking? How do I navigate it differently to allow something different to arise? And so I just want to share a few things around that to reflect on in terms of that. And I want to boil it down to one thing, and that's to pause when I'm speaking. And of course. You know, if I'm up here speaking, it's so easy to pause. You guys aren't going to say anything. You're in silence. (laughs) I can pause for as long as I want. I can feel my body. And so I really want to acknowledge this is the best place to practice pausing because nobody's going to interrupt you. And I do want to point out, if there are places where you can pause and you're not going to be interrupted, to practice that. It's so nice to practice something where it's easy. And I find often when I'm talking about uh, wise speech or mindful speech, everyone wants to talk about the most difficult place to talk, and then we skip over of how can I find a place where this is easier to to play around with, pausing. So you need to find yourself a silent retreat that you can speak to people where they're all quiet. (laughs) But even in the midst of conversation, uh, to me there's a way of pausing, which all I'm doing is seeing if I can keep in contact with my body in some kind of way, a general sense of my body. Because I find when I have a general sense of my body, there's more of a sense of coming from a place of mindfulness, a place of actually being here. And in in some ways I'm, at this moment, I might change in the next moment, grateful for my family around this. My family is so great. My family is so argumentative. And interrupting is just the way we speak with one another. (laughs) And so it was wonderful to be in that kind of cultural dynamic of that's the way it's going to happen. Because just pausing, um, I would have never said anything in my life if that was the way it was going to be. How can I stay kind of grounded in the midst of that? And it's so fascinating just to watch that and to watch what my mind is doing around that. So to pause. And probably most importantly, to pause so I'm listening to the other. I think this fits into what Matthew was talking about, how so often what I'm doing is I'm creating the other person. And I'm really not listening to them. I'm hearing what fits into my frame of them and I'm not being pulled out of that. It's different to to truly make contact with the other. Like what comes to mind is there was a a French continental philosopher um, Emmanuel Levinas who was a phenomenologist and he it was so fascinating where he started his philosophy which was in the experience of seeing the face of the other. It really fits in with what Matthew was saying. And if I truly see the face of the other, it pulls me out of my concepts. I I can't, quote-unquote, totalize them. I can't make a concept about them. And what does it pull me into, according to him? Compassion. It pulls me out of my world. And I need to pause for that to happen. To be pulled into what he would call the infinite, to really make contact with another person. And so much of my speaking, I'm not speaking to the other person, I'm speaking to my world about them. To me, that's the heart of speaking is, can I listen? And for me, also around speaking, uh, sometimes what I'm tracking is... uh, uh, is my mind hooked or not? And where does my mind get hooked around views? And the Buddha put it really, really clearly. What a mind or a heart that's hooked on views. What, what the the phrase is that captures that. He says, it's it's this this feeling or thinking of, oh, only this is true. Only this view is true. And anything otherwise is worthless. Do you know that state of mind? Whenever I watch the news, I know that state of mind. (laughs) I got the right view. And it's tricky. There's such a hook for me around this. And it's when I feel the hook of a view, I need to say to myself, Brian, do you want to be right, or do you want to be free? And that's an important question, because I so want to be right. But that desperation to be right often has nothing to do with my freedom or the freedom of those around me. So pausing to listen, to notice what's going on in this heart and mind. And then there are qualities to bring to speech, and there's different lists, like a very classical... List of reflection of to get a sense of before I speak is what am I going to say? Is it true? Is it kind? Is it timely and is it useful? Those those four things. Is it true? What I'm going to be saying. Is is this kind? What I'm going to be saying. Is it timely and is it useful? So that's a, a common thing that maybe some of you have, have, have heard. But I want to take a different tact of another list the Buddha gave. That is, uh. Uh, very seldom talked about and he talks about another quality of wise speech is to uh, having investigated, having a sense of the situation and context to speak praise for where praise is deserved and after having a sense of a context or a situation to speak dispraise where dispraise is needed which I think is interesting. Like I didn't. I came upon this much later in this practice. Oh, the, the wow! The Buddha is really into dispraise too. There's a place for that, and it gives a whole different sense of what kindness means. Kindness is just not about being nice. It's about having a sense of the greater harmony of a of the interpersonal field, which means I I might be able to I might need to say something that is a quality of dispraise at times. So, how to do this? So, I just want to give two examples around this, around praise, and I, I, I feel like the praise piece. I, the, the my biggest inspiration around this was uh, one of my main mentors when I really entered into kind of the insight meditation tradition, Eric Kolvig. and. It was amazing. Like, I would go to Home Depot with him. And he's looking for, like, you know, a little screw. And he finds someone to show him where it is. And he's like, thank you so much. Like, I would have been going around this, this, uh, this store for, like, an hour if it wasn't for you. And there was something so beautiful about him praising something that can seem so mundane about somebody, quote-unquote, doing their job. And see how it changed the whole field. And for those of you who have been in those kinds of jobs, I know I have, it makes a difference when you're seen, because there's a kind of invisibility around that, so much so. And then we can collude with that societal invisibility. That's making an impact, that's making a difference when I can notice the things that are worthy of praise and to voice them. Every day in your life, there are probably people and things that deserve your praise. It feels so good. When I call, I remember calling the IRS and I needed, I had a tax question. You know, you write on the line, it feels like probably literally for two hours, I ask my <laughs> one question and I can get hooked if I think it's the person on the other line that it's their fault that it's taking two hours, but to pause and to be grateful that they're helping me. And of course, my mind can undermine it saying, oh, they're just doing their job. I miss a moment of seeing that which is wholesome, that which is beautiful. Where can you speak that? That's so important. And I think it can be overlooked. So, so often, we go to the second piece of like, how do I do the dispraise thing? But it's the praise thing that, that I think really needs a, a skill. how to speak dispraise and what I've noticed it takes so much wise reflection and kindness for it to really take root so I want to give one example of this I was this is when I was getting my um, counseling degree and I was with the Kind of the head nurse at this small college university, and we were going around to the different dorms, sharing with the students the services of the the health center. I was talking about the the counseling services, and she was talking about the or the the medical health services, and we noticed this pattern that that many of the students, you know, were were folks of color, you know, like Latinx folks, or all over from the, the international folks, like from Nigeria, there was a big contingent. And that, were, that was most of the students in uh, many of the dorms. Yet the, the student who was picked for the RA in most of these dorms was white. And it was just an interesting thing to hopefully you know, take note of in institutions. And, and I want to acknowledge this is a, a complex thing in terms of you know, how racialized dynamics happen. And I was talking to the nurse about it, I was like, Wow, you know, maybe we should say something to, you know, the housing department who's picking the the these resident assistants in each dorm about just what's going on. And and that was the first thing was to have conversations with other people. Because I can get so self-righteous as if I know what's going on and want to like slam somebody for something I don't know the whole picture about. And she was a little bit nervous about it. And she knew the, the, the woman who was uh, in charge of the dorms. So we spoke about it. We made a plan. Um, and I also took some time to really speak with a lot of the other professors in the university just to get a sense of the dynamics of this institution. And we took some time to, sen- to get a sense of how to do this kindly. And part of that was reflecting on what's the good time to have this conversation? How can we allow that other person to feel safe? So we decided to go in the afternoon after she had had lunch, and the nurse was really quite close to her. And we went in and um, and we sat down and kind of had some small talk and some connection. And I uh, and then I said, you know, hey, you know, we're we're noticing this dynamic. And also, I need to say that I was an intern at this time. I was doing my internship for counseling. And uh, so I shared this with her. And she leans over her desk and looks at me and says, are you calling me a racist? And then she said, you better watch it, because I can take your internship away at any moment. And then um, it spiraled downhill from there. We left. I looked at the nurse, and I said, I think we did a good job. (laughs) I sincerely mean that. Because in that moment, what I noticed is that we checked our hearts, our intention, and there was a clarity there. It turned up being a disaster, but that's not in my power. And especially around speech, around dispraise and these difficult things, I need to remember how much of it is out of my control. And the way I reinforce my wise speech often is to see the intention. And yes, there's a whole other world of impact, being sensitive to impact, especially around dynamics of power, of who has the power and who doesn't have the power. So I'm not denying that but also being clear about what's in the heart. So wise speech, to pause, to pause to find the time to speak, and probably most importantly to pause in order to listen, to truly listen to the other.
0: Shanti Deva says, um, As long as b- diseases afflict living beings, may I be the doctor, the medicine, and also the nurse who restores them to health. May I fall as rain to increase the harvest that must feed living beings. And in ages of famine, may I myself serve as food and drink. My body, every possession, and all my goodness, past, present, and future, without remorse, I dedicate to the well being of the world. So there's a saying um, to you you teach teach from the scar not the wound yeah meaning that we as teachers we kind of reflect on that which is complete enough in our heart that we can share in ways that are stabilizing for you yeah and there's a lot of wisdom in that. But I'm gonna teach from the wound a little bit, yeah. And um, just share a kind of inquiry and something that feels um, feels like a, a real question. And so, um, and it's a question about like what, what, what's a good life, you know, and almost all the time I feel like being in the Dharma world and serving in this way, it feels like um, the most useful thing I can do. I know it feels, my heart feels most at home, you know, to uh, essentially dwell together in, in this, the, the kind of potency and beauty of the Buddhist path. And um, yeah, I have no doubt about that. And there, there are times, there are moments when it, I, I have a certain measure of, of, um, of, uh, it's really questioning, like, It can feel at times like it's this um, kind of decadent boutique parsing of subtle forms of suffering, when there are really overwhelming forms of suffering unfolding right now in this world, yeah? And so how... um, how can i justify my life can i can we so what what are the the kind of ethical implications of the silence of the stillness of the teachings on compassion and um Part of this path is we commit to a kind of ethical e- evolution. We evolve as ethical beings. We evolve as a species ethically. What was um, tolerable you know, in the past is now unthinkable cruelty. Some of what is currently tolerable will in the future be unthinkable. And we personally get are committed to a kind of like ethical evolution of asking like, what is it, what does goodness entail? What does goodness entail? What does this silence, this stillness, the insight, what is asked of me? And for me, I, I feel like I've, I've lived with a certain kind of moral incoherence, meaning that I felt, I've felt like I cannot really justify my life for a long time. And it specifically came out of um, contact with a philosopher, Peter Singer said, um, if it's in our power to prevent something bad from happening without sacrificing anything of comparable moral importance, we ought morally to do it. Yeah. And the question that was posed to me was like, um, what can a thousand dollars do for you, your life, Matthew? Um, compared to what it does in um, fighting malaria, for example, in another continent, and the the kind of relative goodness of what what money would do for me compared to what it would do there was just morally indefensible, and yet. I kept on living roughly as I had, yeah? And um, There's something important about actually being willing to bear with a sense of moral incoherence, because the egoic function really wants to, I really want to think of myself as a good person, And I often don't want to change my behavior. And the the willingness to stay with a sense of like, am I actually living out my deepest heart? Can I defend my life? And just being willing to ask that question, there's a potency in that, rather than uh, compulsively defending ourselves as an ethical creature, our views. And so, um, in some ways, the modern version, like with a question, the modern version of the Bodhisattva, yeah? (laughs) The Bodhisattva Shantideva, right? yeah, I de- yeah, yeah. With my body, every possession, all my goodness, past, present, and future, without remorse, I dedicate to the well-being of the world. It's like very beautiful. And the modern version of a bodhisattva, what does that actually look like? Well, how do we do the most good that our heart can do? And um, I'm grappling with that, yeah? What is mine? What I can justifiably keep? what I owe to others, the ways in which the fact that suffering is not right in front of me distorts that sense of the proximity, the, the proximity bias of empathy. Yeah? But just because it's remote does not make me any less morally responsible. Yeah? Yeah? Yeah. What's, what's the good life? What does goodness entail? And I'm, I'm wrestling with that in my own heart and my own life. And over recent years have taken action around that. But I still, am asking the question, still finding my way through that sense of, of moral incoherence. And um, trusting that that will catalyze more letting go, more goodness. Okay. Brian's gonna uh, provide some kind of counterpoint. (laughs) (laughs) At least I fucking hope so.
1: for me, around this question of what is the good life. The other thing I'm curious about is sometimes what's fueling my thinking about that question. Again, it comes back to the practice of what is the the quality of mind or the state of mind that's there. Because often what I'm asking these kinds of questions that Matthew is posing to us especially from this, this perspective of Peter Singer, uh, my mind can get trapped in trying to find the ethics of perfection. Because that's so enticing to this mind of trying to be perfect. And there's such a hook there for me. Because what it hooks into for me is my narrative of never enough. And It's amazing. Like My mind has become so skilled at figuring out how I am never enough at everything. It's amazing. And I've noticed that it's fueled my practice. It's fueled how I look at ethics. I remember working with a... um, She was a a violinist, a a concert violinist, and um, she ended up quitting it because it was so uh, oppressive. I mean, she's an amazing musician. and She came and she got interested in uh, meditation and we were working together. And after about a year or two, she hit this wall and she realized, it was really an important realization, that that what was fueling her music playing was fueling her meditation practice, which was no matter what she did, it was never enough. And it, it was such an opening to begin to see that. And so I'm pointing this out not to say that we shouldn't reflect on what is the good life, what is the ethical way of moving in our lives, but, but it's also important to, to get a sense of ourselves and how we engage in that. And there's a few things in, in, in uh, early Buddhism that's been so helpful around this. Um, like One is, is uh, the quote that, that Matthew was uh, sharing from Shantideva. You know, in the it's it's in the third chapter of of this book, the Bodhicaryavatara, the the uh, Shantideva is using this grand la- uh, language. You know, may I be a boat, a bridge for those who wish cross to cross over. May may other beings abuse and revile my body as long as it leads to their happiness. I mean, the most extreme kinds of giving. He's he's pointing out for that's what a great bodhisattva is. And I think that's what Matthew was using. And I find that so moving. And then the next chapter, it's interesting, his response to that. His first response is, oh my god, what did I commit to? (laughs) This is crazy. And he says, oh, in light of this, let me start with the simple things, like offering vegetables to those who need food and it's that juxtaposition that i think is so important around what it is to move forward in that sense of where can you find that you can live the ethical life and is what i said at the beginning of this this retreat and to enjoy it because the way i learned ethics is that i'm never enough i'm always wrong and i'm just c- trying to climb out of that like the story i used to tell is you know i was i, I was brought up Catholic and, uh, what is it, in second grade you have your First Holy Communion? So here I am in, in second grade, and for the First Holy Communion the, the, to, to receive the sacrament, you first have to go to confession. So here I am, this little kid, and I have to go and to reflect on how horrible I am. <laughs> and that just gets reinforced, and I feel like, I feel like I'm a good Catholic. In that sense, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> and Buddhist ethics feels so different. Of how how am I how am I skillful in ethics? Where can I find the places where this is actually happening? So important. And the language that you find in early Buddhism is really interesting because when, when ethics is talked about, the the two Pali words are that are used are kusala and akusala. In, in the Pali. Kusula uh, uh, means, uh, uh, literally the way it's translated, is skillful, not right. And akusula, unskillful. And so it puts ethics in an interesting domain. It's not in the realm of right and wrong. So what's the realm of right and wrong? Is It's like four plus four. Four plus four equals, what does it equal? Eight, right? So if you thought eight you were right if you go, if you thought seven right there or nine you're wrong there's a right answer and there's a wrong one but ethics if it's about skill it's more like i I, I used to play in a in a jazz in a past life you could say in a jazz band uh, clarinet and it was the feeling of that there were nights where it was just more skillful there was a flow to what was going on and other times where eh, it was less skillful, but it wasn't really right or wrong. It was something more nuanced than that. So I, I mention these things so that maybe your mind's like mine, and you can fix possibly what Matthew was saying in the realm of the ethics of perfection, and instead to bring it into the ethics of love. Being able to love, as I was mentioning. Not really a counterpoint, (laughs) but hopefully a broadening.
0: (laughs) Okay, that's enough. So, just uh, just breathing for a moment here, whatever posture. of goodness um, find many